0: Lob Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Um, I hope that I have not uh, talked too much in the, in the pre-time that I had um, with our uh, guest today, who is a researcher and consumer researcher and a marketing professor at the University of Illinois Chicago. Um, she is the youngest of 14 from a Vietnamese refugee family and is a first generation college graduate. And there are so many uh, different awards and honors to her name to go on. I can't tell you, but she's been featured in global media outlets such as Time and Forbes and the New York Times and Fortune. And she writes for the, um, I've read a number of her Articles in Forbes, and so I'm I'm really excited to have her on today, and so I'd just like to welcome and introduce you to Lon, Nguyen Chaplin. Lon, uh, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Perkins, for inviting me to join you today.
0: Well, so glad to have you um, to talk a little bit, and we're certainly going to get to a, a what I I would consider the one of the, one of the main reasons I. I invited you was to talk about your views on how you go about disrupting a system that was designed to hold you back. But before we get there, I mentioned at the very beginning in your introduction that you're the youngest of 14, and um, so I would love tell us a little bit about yourself, the work that you're doing. Uh, I read a lot. I'm, I'm following you an avid follower of your the work that you post and do. Um, tell us a little bit about your work at UIC and, um, and and a little bit about uh, yourself.
1: Yes. So um, I I will like to just start off by thanking you for giving such a generous introduction. Um, I feel like I should talk to you almost like every day whenever I (laughs) might not have a good day. Maybe I can just call you up. (laughs) But yeah, I I am the youngest of 14. And I think that a lot of the work that I do today is informed by the fact that I come from, you know, a, a background where I'm I'm really good at just stepping back and observing and listening because being the 14th, um, being the youngest, you don't really have a voice growing up. You're always the youngest. Um, And when you try to speak, you're either um, interrupting, you're not really included in the conversation, or what you say doesn't make any sense anyway. And so you really learn to observe and to listen and to figure out when you can say something that actually makes sense that takes into consideration other people's viewpoints and maybe take a side and get some, have an ally it's to, um, to achieve your goal. So a lot of the work that I do involves just observing children, actually, and looking at how they're growing up and how they make decisions because I feel like being the youngest of 14, um, it's just making decisions is a very difficult thing. Decisions are made for you. And so my role is to learn how we can empower children to make their own decisions and to make good decisions. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And so um, you have, you're the founder of an organization, a, a nonprofit. Uh, help me if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. Quantum?
1: Quantum, yes. So mm-hmm. in Vietnamese, it's quantum. So it's actually okay. two words. And mm-hmm. in Vietnamese, it means when you do something, you do it with your heart and you pay attention to the small details Mm. because they matter. So Mm. my nonprofit, um, I I work with college alumni or college students and alumni, and I put on professional development workshops for them to, you know, basically open up my network to them. And most of these students are first-generation college students. And so they don't have the resources and they don't have the social networks to just get out there and land these internships and these jobs. And so my nonprofit matches them up with the community, the uh, leaders in the community, and we basically help children from lower-income families and the homeless backgrounds, so that um, they can get clothes, books, just daily essentials so that they can um, – feel good about themselves and feel Mm -hmm. like they matter, that they have a voice. Mm -hmm. and So the college students and alumni are very active in helping their community.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, So I want to jump in right into, um, as I said, one of the main reasons I invited you on um, that and, and what also stood out for me in your bio about you being the youngest of 14, but also that you are from a Vietnamese refugee family. I, I know the first-generation college graduate piece, a lot of people understand that. But what exactly, so when you say a Vietnamese refugee family, what exactly do you mean? What Were you, were you born in Vietnam Under what conditions uh, were you a refugee? Tell me a little more about that.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So um, my mom immigrated to the U.S. and she was pregnant with me. Mm -hmm. And so I was born in the U.S., but I was the only one out of the 14 um, um, who was born in the U.S. And so just growing up, you know, um, my mom was really strict and she was separated from my dad during the chaos and so she actually was a single mom for about for five years so I didn't meet Mm. my dad until I was five actually when we were Mm. reunited with him Mm -hmm. and um, so growing up it was my mom was very strict about speaking Vietnamese at home only and so I didn't learn a a word of English until I started kindergarten and I still Mm. have those feelings of sitting I still have the memories of sitting there and just hearing things but not really understanding what was going on it was a different Mm -hmm. culture different language everything was so different for me and I was also very shy and to this day I would still consider myself an introvert to a certain degree and just Mm -hmm. very shy Mm -hmm. although some people who know me say that I'm clearly not an introvert but I do think (laughs) um but that has a lot to do with my upbringing of just not being asked what I think um just culturally, but then going to school, teachers are always wondering what you think. And But I could never, I could never, I never had the confidence to raise my hand, to offer my ideas, to share my ideas because of my upbringing at home. And so when you say Vietnamese refugee family, what does that mean? It means you struggle. You struggle between your life at home, trying to be Vietnamese for your parents, um, and then going... School and trying to be American enough, and so you're never really American enough. You're never really Vietnamese enough, and you always feel like you're you're upsetting someone or you're breaking the rules or you're culturally you're not following the traditions well enough and you don't understand it well enough. That's what it means to me to be a Vietnamese to come from a sure. Vietnamese family. Thank
0: you, thank you so much, and I and and I ask you that in sincerity because you know, I, rather than. And make assumptions about what that is. That's I, you know, wanted to make sure I asked because I have one of my colleagues and dear dear friends, um, also Vietnamese, um, came over um, by himself uh, during a time uh, in the 1970s, um, and he talks, to, you know, talked a lot uh, to. Uh, me and other colleagues about that experience. And so there are a lot of different experiences and what that means and, and how it, how it played a role in who you are. And, and, uh, so, so thanks for your transparency in saying that. And, and the reason I ask about that. And, and so just hearing you mention that it means to struggle and there are different ways in which you talked about struggling, um, I had a gentleman on the show probably a little over a year ago now, uh, maybe closer to two years, but um, that talked about the myth of the model minority. And, and so just, you know, for a lot of people to hear, um, you know, Asian, um, and in your case, Asian American, um, and, and uh, struggle and difficulty, there will be some people who would not put those together. And, and so what, what's been your experience with that um, as you've told your story uh, and, and especially being separated from uh, one of your parents for five years and so forth or, and, and, and the difficulties um, with that? What, what, what's your experience when you, when you tell your story to people?
1: My experience with, the, you know, the model minority myth is that it's harmful. And, mm-hmm. and here, I, I, I want to process my opinion here by saying that I'm speaking in a purely personal capacity on a very mm-hmm. sensitive topic. And mm-hmm. so because it's so very personal, I also have difficulty speaking about it in a very elegant mm-hmm. manner. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so if I were to, I mean, I'm a perfectionist, and so I always want these do-overs, right? And so <laughs> I hardly ever listen to, I never want to listen to my interviews. Or conversations mm-hmm. that I have that are recorded, so that sure. I. But if I were to listen to it, I probably would want to restate something. So mm-hmm. um, I will. So before I tell you what I think about this mo- this model minority myth, I just wanted to preface by saying that that I may not say things as elegantly as I should, and okay. and I'll probably think about things again and no, wish I okay. something that I have it kinder <laughs> or gentler. Sure, sure. <laughs> but um, no, I do think I that it's yeah, I do think that it's harmful um, because we're as A, A, people expect Asians, Asian-Americans, to work hard. We're, we're seen as submissive. Um, we put our heads down to work, and we're expected to succeed without asking questions and really just to go along. And the minute that we don't go along, and I do have the personality of speaking up and not going along and asking questions, asking how or why, And it is not received well. It is received as she's so difficult, she's difficult to work with, and she doesn't strike me as the typical Asian. You know, I've heard that a lot. Like, oh, you're really different from from most Asians that I know. And so it's, it's harmful because you have these expectations that you will be successful, but most of us grew up low income with limited resources with a lack of social networks, yet we're expected to excel with little structural support. Mm-hmm. Um, the myth erases individual struggles that we face and the individual struggles could be anything from um, not sitting in at home and also not sitting in at school and mm-hmm. not, not having a strong relationship with your parents the way you would want to because of mm-hmm. the cultural differences, maybe generational mm-hmm. differences. And it also ignores the role that racism plays in the struggles of other racial ethnic groups as well.
0: Absolutely. And so Absolutely.
1: when it does that, it's really harmful because it has the potential to pit people of color against each other when yes. we really should be allies. We, we, we can sympathize with each other. We can empathize. Um, we're compassionate towards each other because we have maybe different experiences, but we, we can understand the struggles. hmm Absolutely. And so
0: in absolutely. that way, I think that it's very harmful. Yes. Well, p- what you so much of what you just said uh, really resonated with me. Um, my, my personal story growing up um, in Alabama, African-American male, and I, I – Many times, um, for asking why, asking um, or challenging the status quo, and wanting to do something different, was often met with feeling like an, an alien, you know, in your own home or in your own uh, community, uh, and and so that that resonates greatly with me. Uh, I know that um, a lot of times I would get in trouble, and you probably had the same experience for just wanting to um, to do something different that didn't fit into that that uh, stereotype if you will and, and whether the stereotype was um was a positive one or not, but it was not what you wanted to do or what you you wanted to to have uh it was something that. Um, that was often met with a great deal of opposition. So I I certainly understand. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. And 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 so I, you know, before we, we went live, I told you, you know, I read an article that you wrote, I think it was in Forbes, uh, but I can't remember, um, but, but I read an article that you wrote about disrupting a system. And when before we came on live, I, I told you I said, you know, the way I I understood it. So if you look and listen or think about the title to tonight's show, how to disrupt a system that was designed to hold you back, you know, at some, in some ways, a lot of times people think about disruption in chaotic or even violent ways. Um, and I told you at the beginning that when I when I read it. You know, initially, I thought about disruption as a as an undoing, as a, a a redefining of of a system as well as much as it is destroying or or because sometimes you have to do that. You know, you just have to tear stuff all the way down. Right. You know, in order to get it to work. Right. And so, so I'd love for you to expand a little bit on um on your story about how you came to to even think about disrupting the system and so like i said the reason i I started with the model the myth of the model minority was because uh i'm sure that there have been people who have looked and even heard you speak about it say things like but you're you're asian what do you mean is a system that's designed to hold you back how is it holding you back um, so I'd love to hear what you your, your expansion, if you will, on disrupting a system that was designed to hold you back.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that I think about all the time, actually, because I don't think that disruption necessarily it's not it's not hard to disrupt anything. I think that it's it's time for all of us to get comfortable being uncomfortable, and that is part of the disruption. So. Mm-hmm. Anytime that you create some, cu- some kind of discomfort in a room, whether it be you're an Asian female in a, wi- in a white male-dominated field like academia, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you speak up or you, you disagree with what the majority is saying in the room, that is disruption. And that happens within just that meeting, just within that time frame. But that is still mm-hmm. a disruption anytime Mm -hmm. that it causes some type of discomfort. And you might have listeners right now who feel uncomfortable with this conversation. Um, And when I've had conversations with people, I always tell them, I always tell the audience, if you're white and feeling like the conversation is uncomfortable for you, there is some disruption happening. And so I would encourage you to tap into your empathy. And to think about how uncomfortable it is for people of color um, and, and how they feel like they have, they have a target on their back or that they're reliving racial aggressions or, 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 or they have very real safety concerns. And, um, and that instantly just helps, and I hope it helps with your audience today. It helps um, everyone just kind of get on the same page and think about the level of discomfort that we feel when we're talking about people not understanding where we're coming from, people not understanding our backgrounds or assuming that we should behave a certain way or think a certain way because of what we look like. And I, I never assume anyone is trying to hurt me. And I've had a lot of people say things to me that just are very insensitive. Um, I never assume that they're purposely trying to hurt me, but the pain is palpable. And that is what I write in a lot of my writings is, Let's not ignore how palpable the pain is, but let's figure out how we can see the good in people and how we can have conversations about implicit biases. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Very powerful. Um, what, what you just said um, r- reminded me of something one of my uh, long-time mentors, Dr. James Comer at the Yale Child Study Center said uh, once, and I've never forgotten it, he said that um, in order for a child of color to be successful, he or she has to act, talk, and walk differently than anyone that has ever cared for them. And, And it took me a while to really kind of dissect that and understand what he was getting at, that that there's a a kind of dissonance that a child has to get past to to understand that what you know what you're saying when 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 our kids you know go to school um, that that discomfort that you that you're talking about that that discomfort of being in a in a in a different place uh, that mm-hmm. is almost a standard way of going through life is being uncomfortable and for some that that discomfort is a rare occasion uh and and so what we're talking about tonight is not anti-white or pro something else but it is it's just factual is that we're talking about a system that we are in that had certain benefits for groups of people that talked and act a certain way. And I, you know, to that same point, I remember I was part of an organization once and we had, we had um, representatives from all over the country and, and I was on the board of directors. And so um, the question came up about uh, um, people participating in the, in, in some of the events, uh, one of the things that we used to do is we used to go to, to Washington, D.C. to lobby our congressmen and women um, for different laws to be passed. And, and someone raised the issue around uh, individuals who were being invited who didn't speak. Like everyone else, and so I, I'm not sure. What do you mean? You know, I raised my hand. What do you mean they don't speak like the rest of us? And what they were getting at was that they didn't use the best uh, English um, English speaking skills, where they split verbs sometimes, and they didn't always conjugate uh, the conjugate the verbs uh, uh, properly, and that they should not have an opportunity to go and talk to a senator. Or or a congressperson, and I, I it really disturbed me. But those are the kinds of things that we're talking about about uh, having to undo, uh, and and so um, it is, and it's for a large group of people that these these things happen. And so how how do you think about like how do we how do we teach? children and others, I mean, because there are a lot of adults, how do we teach others how to to start in the disruption of a system like that?
1: You know, I think that what you're getting at is the bigger issue of um, people being called out for a microaggression and also how would you confront these biases because when you make any when you confront a bias, you are essentially disrupting the system. Like I said, mm-hmm. anytime that there is some discomfort, there is disruption. And so I think that it's good to talk about being called out for a microaggression mm-hmm. and, um, because I think that there's a gentle way to do it and there's a, an effective way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to do it, but in a kind, gentle manner. I'm always mindful of the fact that there are so many people who want to be allies, and, to, and, they, and I'm speaking from a personal um, mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. here. I know that there are mm-hmm. a lot of people who want to be my ally, who want to help me, and who want to champion for me, but they may not really know what to say,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they're afraid that they'll say the wrong thing, or that they, they don't know how to say it or what to say to help me in different situations. And so I want to look for the good in people, and I would encourage all your listeners to look for the good in people. But also don't just sit back and just say, oh, that person didn't mean it. Call mm. them out for it, mm-hmm. but do it in a mm-hmm. kind way
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and talk to them about it and make sure they know that you know they did not mean to hurt you, but the pain is there so that they understand and so that they can be better. We all want to be better. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you are called out for a microaggression, and I'm, I'm Vietnamese-American, I could very well make the mistake of saying something that I didn't mean to, that actually came out to be insensitive. And I think I, mm-hmm. I, I, think I started this conversation with you by saying, I, I'm not really sure how I can state some of my ideas in an elegant way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, you know, when you, were, when you emailed me about coming on to your show, I kept asking, can you send me questions? I don't know if you remember <laughs> this, but I kept wanting questions yeah. in advance because yeah. it's such a sensitive topic. And sure, your sure. assistant, and you kept saying, just come on and just, you know, it's just a casual conversation. But, um, but this is a sensitive topic, and, but it yeah. doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. It doesn't mean right. that you should shy away from, from calling out for microaggression. If you mm-hmm. are called out for a microaggression, don't make it about you. Just listen and sincerely apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and maybe even ask for a recommendation to have them say something differently. That's what I do when I have a little hiccup and I uh, say something I didn't mean. Like, how could I have said it differently? Or I didn't realize how that made you feel, but please let me know what words did I use specifically? Um, How did that lead you to feeling how you're feeling right now? And that really helped me become a better person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think when you're being called out for a microaggression, don't overdo it because it's not the job of the other person whose feelings have been hurt to make you feel better. (laughs) So, again, like, it should not be about you. It should be about the other person and how you can can be better. And then just commit to to doing better and then to follow up and make sure that you you address whatever issues needed to be addressed in the future. Sure. And I would say that there is an up. I will say that there's an upside to being called out for a microaggression. So if you are, listeners, if you are called out for a microaggression, it's not the end of the world. It makes you a better person, and it's an indication of trust. The person who um, labeled your comment believes that you can be better and that they believe that you're open enough to be better, and that's why they're saying it to you, because it's very hard for us to, to open up and to call out a microaggression. It's extremely difficult, and that's yes. what people need to realize. That it takes a lot of courage to say, that hurt my feelings or that um, that came out the wrong way. However you want to call out the microaggression, but it takes a lot of courage to do that. It's not easy.
0: Right. And no, so if absolutely. you are called
1: out, yeah, if you are called out, use it as an opportunity to be better and, you know, appreciate the fact that the person trusts you enough.
0: hmm hmm Absolutely, and you know, um, part when you when you mentioned that you um, you know that it's it's something to be um, I shouldn't say happy about, but thankful for that they they called you out. There's a there's an upside to it that you do actually have an opportunity to be better. Um, I know that I've had a number of times in class. Uh, classes that I've taught where I have asked people at the beginning of class to kind of assume goodwill. Uh, there are some people that this is the first time that they've been in these conversations that are very difficult conversations, and they're going to use some of the wrong language. And so we can correct that. But that's why we're doing it here is that we're having these Open conversations, and we're doing it out of a sense of goodwill. That um, that we're asking questions and and sincerely want to do better for ourselves, and that we don't want to you know we don't want to harm other people. Uh, and I think right. the 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 best thing to do in those conversations is to start out with some some basic. Uh, understanding that we might make mistakes and as we make mistakes uh, my father used to always say you might have to beg someone's pardon you know that that's that's what's going to happen and so I think that's a really good place to start is that if I'm if I have to say I'm sorry that I offended you that was not my intention Um, how can I be better how can I how can I not uh, offend you in that way uh, is, is very important. And I think, I, I love the way you framed it, that that itself is a disruption um, to the system right. itself.
1: Yeah, I think from talking to a lot of people, they assume that when I use the word disruption, I mean, cause all this chaos and right. you know cause all this attention. A lot of the disruption can be done in private because that's how people get better. They don't feel attacked. They feel like you want them to be better, and they're, they're more willing to work to be better when it's done in private, and you have these private conversations. To me, that's more meaningful to have these private conversations. I, I know when I say something and I, and I offend someone by accident, I would want the conversation to be held in private because then I really reflect, and it's more meaningful that way. There's no, there's no wall set up. Um, there's no embarrassment because you're not – when we when we call people out for a microaggression, when we bring it to our attention, their attention, it is not to embarrass them. It is not to hurt them because they hurt us. You know, it's to make the world a better place, basically. Right,
0: right. And to right. do that,
1: we need everyone's cooperation. And to have everyone's cooperation, we can have these private conversations and still be disruptive because right. disruption means – there is this discomfort, which there will be when you have these honest conversations, and then there's going to be progress because something has been disrupted. It's not going to look the same moving mm-hmm. forward, and that's disruption.
0: Yes, yes. Thank you for that. Um, and, and on the other side, that uh, you know, kind of our goal, uh, or I should say one of our goals, is to have people um, feel, feel important and feel valued as a, as as contributing members of of both society and our our groups and our uh, whether they are work groups or, or in, in case of schools study groups or what have you that that that's important. Um, I know we're we're uh, almost out of time, if not running over. But I do want to ask you a question um, about. I know in uh, your organization, Tom, you said that it um, you help low-income children feel valued and develop self-confidence. Tell me just a little bit about how your organization goes about doing that.
1: Right. So we will, so during the pandemic, what we did, well, we were obviously limited by the fact that we couldn't go anywhere to do some of the work that we would like to do because pre-pandemic, we would, um, we would partner with local businesses and gather Um, like new to new clothes, shoes, books, food, and get that and deliver that to kids um, or to the homeless population. But during the pandemic, we obviously couldn't do that. And so we wrote notes to kids to encourage them to stay in school and to remind them that they're, that they're special and that they are a bright star and that they need to keep their dreams alive. And that, you know, just um, well-wish notes to, kids, and we made um, we thought about low-income children and how they may not have access to Wi-Fi. When all the kids were going online to study, a large population of children couldn't go online for school, mm-hmm. and so we made um, an activity book for them, and we raised money so that we could actually print out hard copies, and we delivered it to school principals, and then they sent it out to the homes so that the children had a booklet of activities. Um, It had brain teasers. It had jokes. It had um, physical activities for them to stay fit. And and that helps them feel valued because someone cares enough to make sure that they are still getting some education and that they're still getting a very special book made Uh specifically for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at mm-hmm. least that's what we hope they, they felt mm-hmm. when they receive
0: it. That was our goal. <laughs> that was your goal. I got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for that. And, again, I want to thank you for uh, taking taking the leap and coming on, uh, despite our many <laughs> attempts to um to uh, on your part to get questions I told you just a conversation and um, I'm glad you were willing to come on because I know that a lot of what you've said has resonated not only with me but with other people listening in um, do you, you want to share um, a website for your organization in case someone out there wants to take a look and support or follow what you're doing
1: thank you so much it's just lonchaplin.com and that'll take you there. It's just my first and last name.
0: Okay, excellent. Thank you. Well, I've yeah. learned a lot, and everything you've said and uh, done here uh, today—it was really, really beneficial. And I'm—I'm I'm sure, uh, you know, that I will uh, continue to follow and read. I told you in our time before we got started that I've been really pleased and, and benefited from what you've been posting on LinkedIn, sharing some of your, your great stories, whether it's about your family or about students. Um, thank you, and please continue to, with, your, with your stories. And, and um, I know a lot of people benefit from those. So um, take thank care. Thank you so and much. And we, and we look forward to reading more about what you, what you have to say.
1: Thank you. Although you invited me to share my experiences, I think I might have benefited more from being on your podcast because listening to your questions, um, I just loved all your questions. And I'm leaving feel, feeling really supported and valued, like my voice matters, so I'm definitely going to pay this forward. I'm Thank throwing you. confetti on you to celebrate your successes <laughs> and your courage to have tough conversations with so many yes. people, Dr. Perkins. Yes.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And okay. so Thank And you. so go well, stay well,
1: Lon. Be well. Thank you.